on this week's dose, we have Tyler Amundsen, CEO and co-founder of Lightbulb.ai, the AI data analyst that helps businesses make data-driven decisions 10 times faster. Yeah, Tyler grew up in Kansas City and attended the University of Kansas, where he developed a passion for entrepreneurship and connected with some key mentors that ultimately propelled him into his current journey building Lightbulb. Rock chop Jayhawk. (laughs) (laughs) He envisioned a world where companies don't need more than 150 people to drive outsized revenues, a world in which AI doesn't replace people, but rather empowers them to do more with less. (laughs) (laughs) Yep. And in the interview, you will hear Tyler's AI state of the union and how he believes his company will position itself amongst an ever evolving and accelerating competitive landscape in AI. You'll also hear about his near term strategy around the types of customers Lightbulb will target and what the future holds for the company. Yeah. And stick with us for some great advice to the pilgrims looking to start a company, whether that's venture backed or not, and a top notch list of resources as well as other startups for us to keep in mind. Truly a value-packed episode this week. Such a blast to have one of our good friends on the pill. It felt like it was a long time coming, so I'm glad we were able to get him in the studio. And with that, we're honored to help share his story and wisdom with you all. Here's this week's dose. The views, statements, and opinions expressed herein by the hosts and their guests are their own, and their appearance on the podcast should not be construed as reflecting the views or implied endorsement of Independent Brokered Solutions, LLC, or any of its officers, employees, or agents. The statements made herein should not be considered an investment opinion, advice, or recommendation regarding securities of any company. This podcast is produced solely for informational purposes and is not to be construed as an offer to sell or the solicitation of an offer to buy a security. Is he here, kid? You gotta just go for it. Don't think about what comes after or what came before. You just gotta bend your knees, take a deep breath, and jump. This is VenturePill, your weekly dose of startups and venture capital. We break down recent startups in the news and interview founders and investors to help you stay informed in the evolving world of venture. On this week's dose, we have Tyler Amundsen, co-founder and CEO of Lightbulb.ai, also dear friend of ours. So it feels like this has been a long time coming. Absolutely. Tyler, how's it going today? Great. It's good to see you guys. Thanks for having me. Of course. Yeah, pleasure. And and a good friend of our very first interview guest, Jack Rule. Oh, you interviewed Jack? Oh, did we? Yeah. Back in the Jack. day. <laughs> yeah. Nice. Um, that, was, that was very early on, and I think it's our... Surprisingly, one of our best performing episodes because really? he pushed it out there. Yeah, it was yeah. fun. I got to check that one out. Yeah, yeah. that's an OG deep into the coffers. <laughs> I think that's deep episode five. Crazy. Wow. Mm-hmm. Yeah, so to kick things off for us here, Tyler, we'd love to hear just a little bit more about your background. What led you? What was the journey you went through to ultimately starting Lightbulb.ai? And were you always entrepreneurial and always looking for an idea that would be worth going all in on? Yeah. Um, so I knew that from an early age, I wanted to start a business. I had seen that in my family. So my mom and her brothers had a family business that they started together. And seeing how, you know, that entrepreneurial spirit drove them, it inspired me and like opened my eyes to what's possible. So just to have that example in your life and belief that you can build something was big for me. And I had no idea like what I wanted to build. Uh, but I went to, I grew up in Kansas City. I went to KU, the business school there. And 
was trying to figure out a way to make money at KU and doing something that I enjoyed. So I ended up uh, just starting a business where I would plan events. And so I would fly in DJs from around the country. I would sell wristbands to these events at different venues uh, throughout Lawrence and then got into collegiate travel. So planning like spring breaks and Mm -hmm. Vegas trips and ski trips. And I learned a lot doing that around just like building a community, selling, and the fact that I wanted to do something for myself because it was kind of that first job that wasn't really a job. I wasn't working for someone. And so, you know, fast forward a little bit to when graduation time came around I still hated the idea of going to work for some big company (laughs) and I was like, okay, I got to find something that I can do or a company at least I can go learn at. And I actually ended up going to, it was a, it was the most valuable class I took at KU was a free class and it was called the startup school. And it was taught by a guy named Brian McClendon who actually created uh, the technology behind Google earth. So it was keyhole was that, initial technology and then that got acquired by Google turned into Google Earth and the first location on Google Earth was actually an apartment in Lawrence Kansas oh wow fun fact and so um, he put on this like two-week seminar brought in a bunch of different entrepreneurs from around Kansas City that he knew pretty well and one of those entrepreneurs was Sandy Kemper and so Sandy started a company he has a very interesting backstory uh, but his big success was called C2FO. And Mm -hmm. so that dude was just a force of nature. And I sat in that class and I was like, oh my gosh, I have to start a company, but I need to learn from this guy. And so whatever I can do to put myself in his stratosphere and absorb the things he's saying more, I want to do it. So then COVID hit, I was spending like, you know, time at home with my parents after I had graduated and I applied for that job. Uh, as a very entry-level sales role and fortunate enough got it and it was like one of the first SDR roles within the company so it's a it just to give context on what that company does it's a global fintech marketplace and an interesting fact about what they do they actually move over a billion dollars a week of working capital through their platforms so if you combine all of the big banks the amount of volume and loans that they give out doesn't even compare to what C2FO is doing. So it was wow. a very cool company to, to get in on. And I learned how to sell. And I learned how to build a process. And eventually, we scaled that team. I was the second rep. We got to 14 reps. And uh, the manager ended up leaving right when we scaled up to 14. So I got the opportunity to lead that team for about a year, learned a bunch, led an, another full-cycle sales team, And then the most interesting opportunity came after about seven months of leading that team where I got the opportunity to launch a new startup within C2FO, and that was called Cashflow Plus. And that was a a really innovative payment product where essentially you could accelerate terms on an invoice without having to give up a discount, and you could actually earn 1% every time you'd spend. But in that role... You're, you're digging into data on a weekly basis, reporting to executives, like, here's what's happening in our business. And for me, I was spending, I mean, after hours, after work, anywhere from like 12 to 14 hours a week, just analyzing data, doing grunt work, trying to figure out how to make sense of all of this data that's happening and going on in our business. And I didn't know how to code, right? So 
a lot of times I had to rely on a data analyst who would ultimately give me the answers to my questions. And all that analyst was doing was taking my question, translating it to code, and giving me an answer. And so that's when I had an idea like, okay, maybe there's a better way to do this. And this was like probably a month prior to like GPT blowing up. And so going back, like going into C2FO, the whole idea was I'm going to find a problem that I can solve myself or find people to help me solve. And so it was literally like in the shower, a just holy shit moment where I was like, this is it. What's the name of the company? Oh, light bulb. Literally a flash of lightning hit me. Texted my brothers. I'm like, here's the idea. It's a big play. I think it could be huge. And then I just started talking to people, validating the idea, and uh, ended up meeting my co-founder at C2FO. So he was a technical engineer. He's actually ended up, he's a PhD student getting his PhD in AI. And so he walked me through, this, this solution is possible. Uh, someone's going to build it. It should be us. And so that, that I went into the whole journey, like, I got to find a problem. Here's the problem. Here's a possible solution. Here's someone who can help make it happen. And then it was a matter of probably three or four weeks of just interviewing different data analysts, different sales managers, validating the problem to the point where I had enough conviction to just fully make the jump and go all in. That's an awesome wow. story. Yeah, <laughs> great answer to the question there. Um, I think it's a true testament to just putting yourself out there, going to that class. You never know where it will lead to make a connection with an entrepreneur like that. Right. And of course, you end up at his company, right? And you learn so much, and that's already a win. But then you have this light bulb moment yeah. to build light bulb and right. connecting with your co-founder. It just shows you. You never know what a connection will lead to, and. Yep. You know, and going and seeing that through clearly has led you to a new phase, which and is to awesome. Bring it, to bring it full circle, what was funny was, um, so I, I, you know, was saying my goodbyes to my team. I had an amazing, amazing career there. It was literally just like, because the whole nature of the business was you're talking to other businesses about their finances, about how they make money, what their pain points are. So you literally just get a master class in business by being in this company. And so when I was leaving, I was telling Sandy, hey, like, I want to wish you all the best. I would love to be able to keep an open line of connection with you. And he actually introduced me to Brian McClendon to go pitch him to become an investor and an advisor. So it all came full circle wow. to where it all started with that startup school class. And then three years later, I'm pitching the guy who taught it on my startup. And it was, wow. a, it was a cool moment. Um, and yeah, it's just funny how everything comes together like that. Yeah. So tell us a little bit more about Lightbulb. Like what exactly does it do? And what are your goals, short, short, medium, and then long-term as well? Yeah, so talk a little bit about the problem, right? You have all of this data that's going on in your, in your company. And like the exhaust of all that data, there's so much value there. And how can you leverage AI in a very simple way to achieve incredible business outcomes that were not possible until now, until these breakthroughs in AI? So like our real goal is to build a platform that helps create the most efficient and effective companies in the world. Because we see a world in the future where there's gonna be 10 to 12 person companies doing hundreds of millions of dollars of revenue. And that's all now possible because of the leverage that people can create in their day-to-day -day lives with these solutions. And so we wanna be helping those companies to reach these new heights and solving really big problems. And so 
thinking about it essentially a platform of co-pilots for X, Y, and Z. So we're starting where we and I know best, which is sales. So a co-pilot for sales managers to help them not only coach their reps and analyze call data to understand what's going on, what are what are the customers that we're speaking with, how is their perception of us, um, and just creating a lot more leverage across a company. And so we're starting with sales, and that's where we're seeing good success now. But the real vision is to essentially create a co-pilot for every kind of role within a company. So you have your sales manager co-pilot and your COO co-pilot. And it's a matter of just understanding what are the workflows and processes that you do on a daily basis that can now be replaced with AI. And how can you create really, really good operational leverage within your business? And only now is that possible. And it's very early in those stages. And we're just starting to dig in and work with clients to understand what that looks like. But we as a company want to be the one of the companies that we want to try to help. We, don't, we want to be less than 150 employees. And we want to see what's possible with that number. And there's a lot of reasons why I think that's a good number and we can get into that. But I think that constraint creates a lot of interesting opportunities because if this is our vision, right, that these new companies are going to be created, well, then why aren't we striving to be one of those? And it's all about how can we, the dog food technique of like, how can you leverage your own technology to make your company better and also serve your clients as well? So that 150 in Dunbar's number? That's right. Exactly. <laughs> it's the maximum number of trusting relationships that you can have in an organization. And I think, you know, in my time at C2FO, I, I watched it grow massively. Like our sales team doubled in a matter of like six months. And you, the culture just fundamentally changes in that environment and you lose touch with the real meaningful relationships and i think that you can if you have meaningful relationships in a meaningful work then it just makes the work so much more satisfying and you don't get into these political games and this infighting and this like siloed off operational kind of beef that can exist totally within companies so i, I think that's a better way to operate and i think it's now possible with AI and these new breakthroughs to create kinds, those kinds of companies that can just do incredible, and you can have a 10X engineer who's doing the work of 100, now leveraging AI to do all of this coding for him. And we're only scratching the surface on what these uh, auto GPT agents can do. So it, it's a very exciting time, and, and that's kind of the vision that we have. Yeah, that Dunbar's number reminds us of our interview with Alex Pacheco, right? His social media startup call 150, yeah. That was the only interview that I did solo. Yeah. The only episode without Brandon, or a couple. <laughs> what was his take on it? Well, his is, his is a vision of a new social media where you're connected to up to 150 people, and so therefore it's the, your most meaningful relationships. I love and then, that. And then you're also connected to your 150s 150 through a secondary network. So huh. it leads to be, I think, 10 to 15,000 people in your network where you can then kind of have the broader social media, but then the closer circle, there's like kind of concentric circles of right. people. And so his idea is no ads, no brands, just authentic, you know, real real connections. I love that. I think that it's it put placing constraints on something like that, You just, it's such an interesting way to think about it. Like what is possible within these restrictions? It just opens up a whole new way to think creatively, to do more with less. I think we're gonna see a lot, a lot more companies based on that premise in the future. 100%. 
And so still relatively in the early going here with lightbulb.ai. Curious to hear some of the early challenges that you've conquered thus far. Yeah, I mean, the biggest is I don't know a lick of code. Like I, <laughs> <laughs> I'm so non-technical. It's it, And so that's a huge hurdle when you're trying to, like going back to that conversation with Brian McClendon, he's an absolutely phenomenal engineer. And so when you go into a pitch with him, you've got to have your stuff buttoned up. Mm -hmm. And the biggest challenge has been just digging in and understanding like how does, what even is AI under the surface? Like what's happening behind that user interface and how can I understand that in a way that I can convey it to others? So it's been really fun to dig into there's a, there's a way that I've been learning and trying to hack that, which is like using GPT, Chad GPT, to basically I'll take a chunk of like a scientific paper and I'll just put like the abstract of the paper into GPT. Like explain this to me like I'm 10. Yeah. And then you just, and you ask follow-up questions and you keep going. And it's a whole new way to learn these really abstract concepts and kind of drill down on what actually it means. So that's a big problem for me, was at least, and I'm still working on it every day trying to learn, but when you want to start a, like a high-tech company and you don't really understand how to code, that can be very challenging. Fortunately, I've got someone who's been coding since he was five. He's brilliant, <laughs> and so he picks up where I, you know, my shortcomings are. So we, we make a great team, but um, the other challenge is, like I said, is like just being grilled by VCs, like just getting told, no, your idea is crazy, it's not going to work. And how do you, how do you take that no not personally and right. understand that that's just part of the process? How do you get into the spirit of just doing, failing, and learning constantly, constantly, constantly learning? Um, well, I imagine your experience as an SDR helped kind of get you familiar, <laughs> yeah. familiar with dealing. You get with told rejection. no all day long, yeah. And it's like being—it's just a good thing to have in life is understanding. Like I can't take these things personally. Like my work is not me as a person. And just because someone says no, that means I'm one step closer to a yes. And that's just sales 101, right? Totally. <laughs> I can relate to that. Yeah. yeah. So <laughs> it's a constant challenge. It's never going to go away, but at least you've got that experience under under your belt. And, For sure. You know, pairing that with all your learning, I think that's something any, any of us can, can take to our daily roles, lives, is, is that style of learning with this new just wealth of knowledge at our fingertips with tools like GPT. It's incredible. Totally. We, we talked about this last week, but between our personal jobs and, our, and the podcast, we're always trying to find new ways to go about leveraging GPT or just AI in general to help us out. And as you mentioned, there's so much going on underneath the hood oh, yeah. of that user interface. Uh, really, you know, could get lost in that wormhole <laughs> yeah. real quick. Uh, but on that vein, AI is obviously, we'd love to hear, given your experience right now, we'd love to hear your state of the union on artificial intelligence even if you lived under a rock, you'd be aware of the revolution that's going on with artificial intelligence. Mm -hmm. uh, and so with that said, what are some of the bigger waves that you're trying to ride as opposed to being crushed by? Yeah, I think the three sort of like main drivers that people should be thinking about is that the, the cost of intelligence, the cost of compute, and the cost of energy are rapidly approaching zero, right? think about intelligence, what's happening in AI, all of these knowledge working jobs that cost a lot of money if you had a business to go pay a person to do, that's now approaching zero or cl as close to zero, almost nominal. Same thing with compute. You see the fact that it took, a I think it was estimated $100 million to build GPT-3. And now other startups 
and open source forums have been able to build a technology or a model similar in performance about on par for $20,000. So just looking at that cost curve and seeing how rapidly it's going down, that is a massive fundamental shift in what's going to happen. So I think just having that lens, thinking through that, and understanding where the opportunities there. I mean, same thing with energy. As sustainable energy becomes more and more prevalent, and there's a world where every house in the U.S. could be independent on its own solar power grid. Like these things are kind of the way we're thinking about where to place our bets in the future. And so, we. I mean, we see a world knowing that fact of a hundred million dollars to twenty thousand. It's going to keep going down to where. You can build and deploy a fine-tuned LLM in your company for hundreds of dollars. And I'm not saying that's going to happen now or in the next two years, but it will happen. So we see a world where companies have dozens of these large language models for different use cases, fine-tuned for specific domains. And a trend that we're noticing now is around the security concerns. I mean, you've probably seen the headlines. Samsung just banned GPT. All of these companies want to leverage these technologies, but they're afraid to because of that data sharing. Because ultimately, OpenAI wants your data. They want the data to train their models to make them better. So how can we, and we've done the work and the research to understand, how can we deploy a model on-premise in a way that zero data gets shared Mm -hmm. and create an incentive structure where we don't need your data to improve our product? And I think that's going to be a huge opportunity for enterprises as they look to adopt these technologies, delivering it in a way that's simple and secure is going to be huge. So that's, that's kind of the angle that we're taking. And I think also the idea that people are so afraid that AI is going to replace your jobs, right? I, I, we fundamentally at Lightbulb don't believe that. We think it's going to empower people to do more with less, not make them obsolete. And so that's kind of the messaging. We want to usher this in for the good of humanity and not this, like, we're here to take everyone's jobs kind of thing. Um, So those are the big trends and how we're thinking about it and where we're placing our bets. Yeah. I like that. Yeah. And it reminds us of a company we recently covered. It will have been published uh, tomorrow. We're recording on on a Wednesday. Um, A company called Cohere. I don't know if you've heard of them. Mm -mm. Based out of Toronto just raised a big round and their play is a gpt like model that is built for enterprise yep and is centered around the same idea of data concerns yeah for enterprise specifically um i think yeah it's it's a big concern we i just my company at interplay did an ai spark day where we, we were all tasked with figuring out ways that we can leverage ai in our day-to-day job and one thing that we like kind of realized um, midway through the day was like, hey, don't don't put sensitive customer data in there. Yeah. And some of us are like, oops. <laughs> right. Well, <laughs> wish we would have known that. So it's like very early on, you know, lots of people are still learning about what it is, but that's like that's a huge concern. With that in mind, you know, how do you view the the competitive landscape? How do you guys differentiate yourselves? I, I think it boils down to three things: simplicity, security and service, right? How can we make a product that is not aimed at the developers or the technical people? So that's, I mean, my whole background is a non-technical person. And a lot of these companies that are emerging are built by super deeply technical people. And that's great. But if you go to their website, you're like, how am I supposed to use this in my day to day? I don't understand this. So how can we create something that's stupid, simple, but wildly powerful? 
And then how can we also create something that's incredibly secure so you don't have to worry about those data leaks? And then service, right? A lot of value comes from just obsessing over your customers and treat, putting them first and understanding not just here's all these cool AI solutions that we can throw at you, but what's the job to be done? What's the problem that you're trying to solve? And what is the business outcome and how do you measure success there? I think a lot of companies are just saying, well, 10x your productivity with this, that, and the other, or these nice-to-have solutions, but how can you find problems and solutions that are just now possible? And again, that back to that platform of co-pilots, where we want to string together all of these different roles within an organization so that when they all connect, you can run really complex analytics across an entire company that would take an analyst human two to three months to do. But our platform can do it in two minutes, and it can do it with one prompt, and it can do it with no data being leaked. That's where we see our opportunity to stand out, um, and that, that's how we're thinking about differentiation. And I think, you know, there's lots of companies popping up every day that kind of take the same vanilla approach to, to the thing there. And something to be aware of, too, is like every time OpenAI releases a new feature, like 15 startups just get squashed. And yeah. so, like, how can you go beyond that of just what's possible now, but thinking, you know, in terms of just generating more efficiencies? into the future of things that were never possible and they are now with AI. And so as granularly as possible, understanding you may need to be a little confidential, what is the like bullseye target customer for your for Lightbulb AI? Yeah, so to start, I mean, we want to go after, we're, we're looking at a couple different options, but the one that we're seeing a lot of traction right now is because we're starting in this sales role, companies with, you know, 100 to 150 sales reps where there's a lot of data being spewed, right? Because if you think about all of these conversations that you're having on a day-to-day basis that your teams, that your sales reps are having, there's so much data in those conversations that you're not doing anything with. So you have to have a large sales force right now. And as we kind of scale up and scale across horizontally throughout the company, what we want to be able to target is the new generation of companies. We want to we want to be the platform that helps new startups, new AI companies become wildly wildly efficient with these kinds of tools. Uh, but to start, you've got to pay bills, right? You've got to you've got to get deals signed. You've got to solve problems. So right. we are we're working right now with uh, a massive like trucking company, mm. and there's a ton of different use cases we can do for them. But it's a matter of just finding out. You know, what is what is the job to be done initially and landing and expanding? So so enterprises are a big one, large sales teams with lots of data, and they have kind of a through line in terms of their tech stack because you want to connect all these different data silos together, so you've got to find the commonalities between that. And we're still trying to figure that out, like who is the ideal customer? We're, we've talked to a bunch of different people, a bunch of companies are interested in this, but there's a level of AI readiness that you have to have. Yeah. And a lot of these companies, they're just not ready for it. And it's gonna take three to five years of just pounding the pavement and cleaning and structuring data and putting all these pipelines together before you're even ready for a solution. So we're trying to find the ones that are ready. Mm-hmm. And so what do you view as like a couple of key milestones for the rest of this year, for example? Yeah, I would say, um, Obviously, just getting our product in the hands of customers, right? Scaling up the team, 
we want to we want to really have like at least by the end of the year probably 10 10 heavy concentrated developers and the biggest milestone for us is like how how can we build our product out and understand what it's actually going to be doing for these companies right and so to do that you've got to get the product in the hands of customers so that's the biggest milestone the biggest hurdle we're facing right now um and that we we are on a good track to do that i think by the end of the summer we'll probably have 10 to 15 customers onboarded nice we'd like to raise an additional round of funding by the end of this month we're on track to do that and just keep moving forward right keep keep moving forward keep scaling up the product keep scaling up the team but being mindful of the vision and making sure we don't deviate too far from that. I uh, have a little bit of a question just about your mindset as a founder, you know, relatively new to being a founder. Mm -hmm. Um, How do you balance wanting to expand your product and just keep trying new things and finding potential applications, but also the need to not get in over your skis and like focus on keeping the current infrastructure that you have intact and improving it? That's a good question. It is. I mean, like shiny object syndrome, right? Like there's just, there's all of these different balls that you can chase. And I think an important question to ask yourself is like, what should we be saying no to? Like what is not aligned with our vision? And I mean, to be frank, I've fallen for that. Like I I followed one potential client who had this idea for a use case and we went through it only to find out, okay, this isn't going to work. And so you learn from those mistakes and you just bring it back into like, okay, let's keep the main thing, the main thing. And, uh, it, it's not easy. Like you have to have that discipline and that vision and know when to say no. And that can be hard, but I think the more times you make that mistake, the easier it gets to be like, okay, let's, let's not do that again. Let's focus. Yeah. Focus is everything in these early stages. Totally. That, that resonates with what a lot of other people we've interviewed say, like, Focusing on focus is yeah. one of the most yeah. imperative and difficult things for any startup, especially a newer one, to yeah. kind of hone in on. It's tough. I mean, it's tough because like, there's no roadmap for this. There's these these kinds of companies have never been created. So it's just you wake some. If you can wake up in the day, if you don't come in with a pain, like what the he- what the hell am I supposed to do today? <laughs> and so it's a matter of like prioritizing and how can I focus on the few things that I know that are going to move my business forward and just relentlessly do that time and time again, thousands mm-hmm. of times over and over and over, and that's where you're going to see the results. Yeah. It's like uh, Dustin Bell, CEO of Cardio, uh, quoted, and it's actually a Kobe Bryant quote, but just small individual efforts that compound over time, which day over day, you may not be seeing any tangible improvement, but you look back a year later, six months later, three years later, and it's like, whoa, I got a lot of shit done in three years. Yeah. Consistency compounds. Yep. Yeah. What, what keeps you motivated? What keeps me motivated? The why, right? Like the, you have to, if you set a goal... I think around goal setting too, and I've, I've been meeting with a mentor who's really taught me a lot about this. And it's interesting. He, it was basically all about like how to keep, how to stay motivated, how to set a goal. And he asked me like, what's your goal? And I was like, I want this many customers and this much revenue. And I want our product to do X, Y, and Z. He's like, well, why is that your goal? I was like, well, and then I went on a two minute kind of rant explaining the logical steps on why I thought that was the goal. He's like, you said something in that explanation. You said the word reasonable. 
your goals can't be reasonable. They have to almost frighten you. They have mm. to make they have to be so audacious that you you don't necessarily know how it's going to get done, but it's so big that you know that when that works, that's going to be the payoff. And so taking it a layer deeper than that is what's the why behind it? Like the why behind everything is super super important. So for me, it's just constantly repeating to myself what is the why like why am i doing this it's it's not for me it's not to make a bunch of money it's to it's to really just change the way business is done fundamentally and open up an entire new space for these kinds of companies to exist and that excites me solving big problems with new technologies nothing makes me more excited god i love that <laughs> focusing in on the why that's that's always a winner love yeah that you're a great business mind I can tell in the few months I've gotten to know you. I'd like to think of Sam and I as also business minds. So obviously there's like a glorification of being a founder, being your own boss. Like it's empowering, right? It's what everyone kind of strives for. Yeah. Not everyone, but a lot of people <laughs> strive for it. Now that you're on the other side of the fence here, what's one thing about being a founder that either you wish you had known before you started or is just contrary to the mainstream perception of, you know, being your own boss and the founder of a company? I think, you know, before I made the jump, I heard all these, like there's a lot of advice and like watching all these podcasts and reading these books, people are like, don't do it. Don't do it. It is so hard. It's so painful. It's so brutal. It's so humbling. And I had that idea of going into it, but then when I made the jump, I was like, holy shit, these people were right. This is really, <laughs> really hard. And you have to learn to squash doubt because it can creep up at any moment. Mm -hmm. And even if you're talking negatively to yourself or about yourself, your like mind doesn't know what's true or not. So how to essentially just monitor that inner dialogue because inevitably things will come up. When you're getting told no, when you don't know what the next step is, that you're just going to be like, how do I move forward? But I think it's all about going back to the why. Like, why am I doing this? What's the purpose here? And that's kind of where you find your source of inner strength, I would guess. So you, you made the move to Austin recently. Yeah. What, I mean, it's a great place. We, we, know, we know about it, but how'd you hear about it? Was that where you kind of envisioned building your company? What brought you here? Yeah, it wasn't, it wasn't an easy decision, but I just think the best thing anybody can do is like figure out what you want to do and then go be in a place where people are doing that thing. Right. And so the scene here is just orders of magnitude bigger than Kansas City. Kansas City is great, amazing people, amazing city. But just the amount of connections that I've made so far, like meeting you guys, it's been amazing just to meet people like you, like minded individuals striving for something um, and getting out of your comfort zone. Right. So the scene here, like every week, there's all these AI meetups. Just, it's the venture scene coming into the Capital Factory, meeting all these people. None of that would have been possible if I stayed in my little shell in Kansas City. So just breaking out of that mold was a, was a great decision, and I have no plans of leaving anytime soon. <laughs> Love that. Any commentary, or what was your thought process on choosing Austin over the traditional venture capital hubs like New York, San Fran, Chicago? I think you just look at New York, look at California. It's like a mono conversation, right? Everyone in New York wants to be in finance. Everybody in... <laughs> San Fran, I guess you have, you know, Silicon Valley, but California seems to be a nightmare right now. So I wanted no, you couldn't pay me to live in California right now. And there's just this kind of flood of people, entrepreneurs, interesting people doing different things in Austin. And I think that kind of blend of culture and ideas 
is what drew me here. And like, you know, the top podcasts I listen to all hosted out of Austin. All of the bands that I love are always playing in Austin. Like it's just, <laughs> it's, it's, it's a great scene. And I wanted to just meet more people, double my network. And, and that was kind of the thought process. Yeah. You are preaching to the choir right now. Yeah. We, love, we love that. <laughs> uh, we'd love to let our listeners get to know you a little bit better, even though you've been, we appreciate how transparent and how open you've been about everything thus far. First things first, what is the best piece of advice that you'd want to give to some of the venture pilgrims out there? Those are our listeners, in case you're confused, mm -hmm. uh, that are wondering how to get into the scary from the outside world of venture capital and startups and entrepreneurship at large. I love the name Pilgrims. That's great. <laughs> you're, the, you're the newest one. Uh, I'm proud to be one. Um, yeah, I'm generally reluctant to give advice on anything. I think you should be skeptical of any advice you get. But if I had to say something, I would, I would say just think very carefully about what kind of company you want to build and what kind of lifestyle you want to have. And it's okay to build a sustainably bootstrapped company that grows slowly, but you have complete control over that. Because if you look at the world of venture, there's no singles or doubles. It's like you either hit a home run or you strike out. And you have to understand that going into it. And the way you structure your company and the way you think about capital raising all has to be factored in going into it. So I would say if you're thinking about starting a business, ask yourself, what kind of company do I want to have? And who do I want to answer to? And what are the risks that I'm willing to take? And once you start to answer those questions and ultimately answer to like, what am I optimizing for in this process? Is it that I want to build a thousand person, massive billion dollar company, or do I just want a great lifestyle or I can take three months out of the year and go travel to Thailand? Mm -hmm. Like just asking yourself, where, where do I want to be? And reverse engineering from there. I think a lot of people can just say, oh, I've got a great idea. I'm going to go raise a million dollars and then you end up just in a deep trench of regret. And that's a sad story. So I would just say, think carefully about that. But if you do want to do that and you have realized that you do want to go into venture, I think just take it one meeting at a time. Find either a personal connection to someone. Warm intros are always best to getting into a, a, a venture environment and do it early. Do it before you need the money plant those seeds along the way and build the relationships and then keep them in the loop. So like every week I'll send out an update to the people that I want to keep in the loop so that when the time does come and I do want to raise money, they've seen my traction, they've seen my progress and they're up to date on the struggles and how we've mm -hmm. overcame them. And a lot of, I've talked with a lot of venture capitalists who say that's rare. Most people don't do that. And it's, it's a good way to stand out, to be transparent. And it makes the whole process a lot easier. So that would be, if I had to give advice. <laughs> For someone reluctant to give advice, that was some incredible comprehensive no, he, advice. He prefaced it with his first piece of advice, which was, take, don't take my advice. Yeah. Skeptical of I advice. mean, look, I'm an early founder. I by no means consider myself to be successful. And so just that's, that's my two cents. But and that's not stuff that I've come up with originally, but I think it, it might be helpful. But again, yeah. if you're going to get advice from someone, get it from someone who's done what you want to do. I, I was going to say real quick, like you, you deserve your, your credit, your flowers for this. You are so humble about being a founder. Like I've had the honor of being with you in many social situations and you know, nobody would really know unless you really got to know them. Like you 
you are a very humble founder, which is great to see. Well, thank you. And that's because I fail a lot. (laughs) (laughs) You get humbled on a daily basis doing this stuff. And so it's, I, I don't see another way to be like overconfident about it. I think being humble, being kind, that's just like, you know, a good way to live life. So. That's the Midwestern mindset, baby. (laughs) (laughs) Mixed with a little Southern hospitality. Amen. Um, What about, you mentioned some some of your favorite podcasts here. What are some resources that you like in the world of startups, podcasts, books, anything? Yeah, I am a big fan of, I just started listening to it a couple weeks ago, but it's called Acquired. And Mm. it's these two guys who just go like three hours deep on these companies um, I listened to the one about LVMH recently, and that is an incredible story. And just, I think, you know, I'm not as big of a fan of, like, when it comes to books, like, um, nonfiction. I think autobiographies and biographies are really, in history, I'm a big fan of that, because mm-hmm. it's less theoretical. It's like, here's what actually happened. Uh, so I think biographies are great. And a great podcast to listen to if you're into that kind of thing is Founders. And David Sinra is, I think, the guy who hosts that one. Have you heard that one? Mm -mm. It's awesome. No. Same kind of concept. This dude's read hundreds and hundreds of biographies on the best entrepreneurs in the world. He'll read like three or four and then do all of these notes and then weave it all together in a really compelling kind of story. Wow. And he does it in a way where there's like a lot of lessons that you can learn. And it's not just, you know your typical podcast, you're actually learning something and it's historically based. And so that's, that's what I found interesting. Another book that I'm reading right now is called the mom test. And it's all about how to conduct customer discovery conversations in a world where everyone lies to you about your idea. So like I made this mistake firsthand where I would go in and I would say, Hey, here's my idea. It's going to be great. I'm pitching. And all they're telling you is what they want you to hear or what you, they think you want to hear. And so how can you flip the conversation in a way that you get more signal and less noise? And I, I made that mistake dozens of times, like going around telling people, I've got this idea. And they say, oh, that's great. And then nothing happens. So that's a really good resource. The mom test, highly recommend it if you want to validate an idea. Yeah, I'm curious. Maybe you could give a brief summary. How do you flip that? Yeah. I guess you still have to finish <laughs> reading maybe. but No, I mean, I, I've read pretty much all of it. And I would say the biggest thing is don't tell your, don't tell them your idea, ask them questions. If, if you have a general idea of the problem, for example, call coaching, what are the constraints or limits in your day to day that you face when it comes to coaching your sales reps? Mm. And you just kind of dig in. And then once you get a little nugget, you pull on that thread and you keep seeing where it leads. Well, what are the implications of that? And the biggest thing, too, is people will tell you about their problems all day long, but that doesn't mean they're willing to pay for a solution. Mm -hmm. So how can you validate, is this a problem that you're willing to pay for a solution on? And you ask, well, have you tried to solve that? What have you done to solve that? And they're like, well, I just deal with it. Well, there's probably not much there, right? So maybe just go to the next conversation or keep working on your idea. Totally. Before you spend $30,000 on developers <laughs> to build a solution that no one wants to buy. Yeah, I think it's you know human nature to like to complain about problems, totally. right? But not also human nature to not want to pay for solutions. Too. Yeah, exactly. So, exactly. <laughs> quite a duality there. Um, moving on, you mentioned you know, you've got a good foothold, stronghold in the Austin 
startup scene, especially AI focus, you're working in Capital Factory every now and then. So with that, are there any other startups out there that we should know about? There's a couple, uh, not related to Austin. There's a couple, I would say, one that I think, that I use on a day-to-day basis. It's called Supernormal. It's uh, a Chrome extension. And I use Google Meets, and it's basically just this bot that sits in your Google Meetings and transcribes all your conversations. Mm -hmm. And not only does it transcribe them, but it can actually use GPT to summarize action items, key takeaways. There's different templates you can choose from. I've found that to be incredibly useful. Uh, I think they're they're poised to do really good things. They're getting ready. I talked to the founder. They're getting ready to go to enterprises. Mm. That's a great company and a great product that I use literally almost every day. Another tool, and it's not necessarily a tool, it's a platform. Have you heard of Adept? Adept no. AI, they're, I mean, th- what they're doing is pretty incredible. It's this idea of intelligent automation. So how can you, I mean, we've all heard of like RPAs, robotic process automations, but when you combine that with AI, really cool things can start to happen. So mm-hmm. you'll see, if you go to their website, Adept AI, you'll see their demo, and it's one of the use cases was like, go book me a room in this hotel under this price point next to these restaurants. It'll do all the all of the work. Ooh, and what cool. back to what I was saying earlier, like now that I'm just thinking about it, the auto agents, the GPTs, like they might be in trouble now. Yeah. But they, I think they're going about it in a really smart way, and they've got a really good founding team. Um, and then as far as uh, there's another one. Human Loop, that's a really cool company, amazing founder, and they're basically figuring out a way to make it easier for developers and founders to build AI applications in a more cost-effective, quicker way. So like training, fine-tuning, A-B testing, prompt engineering, it's a good platform play. And you asked locally, I met a founder the other day who's building uh, Loop Message is the name of his company. And he had started it a while back before all the GPT craze, but he's just now integrated chat GPT into iMessage and it's an API play. And I think APIs are beautiful business models where you don't have to develop this super sexy front end. You just have a really useful technology sitting on the back end and you can monetize on usage. I think he's going to crush it. So those are, those are the things you should maybe, (laughs) maybe talk to him. I I actually am going to get lunch with him this week. I could, Yes. Yeah, please put us in touch. But you just provided a full dose's worth of startups. <laughs> <Yeah>. <laughs> That's awesome. I'm curious with that first one, the Chrome extension for Google Meet. Do you, so I have something similar for Zoom. It's like read.ai. I mean, that's definitely a fierce competitive space. Yeah. Do you find pushback from people that you join meetings with? Like, what's this bot doing recording? I my... love that question because actually it's the opposite. People are like, what is that bot? And then I'm literally pitching super normal for them. I'm like, (laughs) it is this really cool tool. Here's what it does. And then their little unique hack at the end is once the meeting is over, it prompts this page to share the meeting notes with whoever was on the meeting. Mm -hmm. So then you Mm. just copy and paste a link to them. And now they're, now they're boom. It's like just a great flywheel. Yeah. Yeah. That's, that's a really good that's, flywheel. That's exactly like the platform I have as well, but you should uh, get an affiliate marketing code for Maybe, it. maybe. Yeah. <laughs> uh, well, Tyler, it's been a blast having you on. What's the best way for people to connect with you, social media, follow along what Lightbulb's doing? Yeah, you can go to lightbulb.ai, uh, check out our website, try our product, and my email. You can just, uh, happy to throw my email out there, tyler at lightbulb.ai. Love to meet anybody building AI 
tools. Would love to meet anybody looking to implement AI at their company. And I'm not very active on Twitter, but I'm looking to be more active. <laughs> so Tyler underscore Amundsen. Awesome. Well, thank you so much again, Tyler, for coming in today, being a great guest on The Pill. Yeah. The newest pilgrim. The newest this is awesome. pilgrim. It was fun, guys. Yeah. Thanks for listening. Join us next week for another dose of startups and venture capital. And as always, we appreciate our pilgrims spreading the word about the show. Share with your friends and help someone else make the pilgrimage. See you next time. She told me that she only bumps my music when she's lonely. Thinks my vibes a little low-key, okie dokie, that's alright, but wait, I don't know how to do things different.